five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Q Podcast. Welcome to the second of three podcasts for our annual winter series. As with our summer series, we'll be bringing you recent important news updates and talks on topics we think you'll find interesting from other creators. Our regular interviews will resume on January 14th. On December 4th, NASA announced the first results from the Parker Solar Probe mission. The mission is a first of its kind, with the probe flying closer to the sun than any other spacecraft before. It's a risky mission, but with rich scientific rewards expected. And in this news conference, the principal investigators confirm some long-thought theories about our star, but also reveal some new mysteries. The seven-year mission continues, and just five days ago, the spacecraft successfully completed its second flyby of Venus. NASA says the spacecraft used Venus to slow itself down, approaching the planet at a distance of about 3,009 kilometers, or 1,870 miles, from Venus's surface during the second gravity assist of the mission. The gravity assist maneuver adjusted Parker Solar Probe's trajectory to set it up for a fourth orbit around the sun, which will soon occur on January 29th. Listen in. Yes, thank you everybody for joining us. I'm Gray Houtaloma from NASA headquarters. And today we have the first exciting results from NASA's Parker Solar Probe, which is flying closer to the sun than any spacecraft before and delivering some startling findings that are changing how we see the sun and understand how other stars around the universe might behave. This also has implications for space weather and astronaut safety in the Artemis program. So let me introduce our panel. With us are Nikki Fox, who is the director of the Heliophysics Division in NASA's Science Mission Directorate at NASA headquarters in Washington. Stuart Bale, who is principal investigator for the Fields Instrument at the University of California, Berkeley. Justin Casper, principal investigator of the Sweep Instrument at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Russ Howard, principal investigator of the Whisper Instrument at the Naval Research Laboratory in Washington. And David McComas, principal investigator of the ESIS Instrument at Princeton in New Jersey. And now I'm gonna turn it over to Nikki Fox to kick things off for us. Thank you, Gray. So I am the director of NASA's Heliophysics Division at NASA Headquarters, the Sunny Division. And what we have to do is really figure out what is going on in the very heart of our solar system, the sun. We know that the sun sends out a constant flow of particles, which we call the solar wind, plus fast-moving solar energetic particles and explosions of solar flares and coronal mass ejections. Of course, all of that can affect the very fabric of space, filling it with radiation and magnetic energy, and also interacting with planetary atmospheres. Near Earth, for us, that means it can affect our astronauts and all of our technology in space, as well as down here on the ground. Before I was the director of heliophysics, of course, I was the I had the honor of project scientist for Parker Solar Probe mission that was built at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, and it's operated from there today. We launched it in 2018 with several very high-level science objectives to help us better understand the complicated system that we live in. 
we needed to go right to the source to really start to figure out what causes the acceleration of all of these particles in the solar atmosphere, what causes the solar atmosphere or the corona that we see during a total solar eclipse, what causes that to be about 300 times hotter than the sun's visible surface. And to improve our understanding of the star that we live with, so we can better predict when it's going to send those explosions towards Earth. So I couldn't be any more excited today that we are here presenting our first publicly shared results from this mission. Uh, we were certainly hoping we'd see new phenomena and new processes when we got close to the sun, and we certainly did. Uh, some of the, the information that we found uh, was pretty much it confirmed what we expected, but some of it is totally unexpected. Of course, none of this is final, but all of this brand new information about the way our star works is going to help us better understand how the sun drives change in the space environment throughout our solar system. There are four instrument suites on Parker, and we will hear from each of the principal investigators a summary of what their particular instrument suite has found. And so without further ado, I will pass it over to Stuart Bale. Thanks, Nikki. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Stuart Bale, and I'm a professor of physics at the University of California, Berkeley. And I'm also the NASA principal investigator uh, for the FIELDS experiment, as you just heard. Uh, the FIELDS experiment measures the solar wind, magnetic, and electric fields directly. We measure uh, the waves and fluctuations that we think are important to, to the solar wind energetics, and we also measure radio emission from the solar corona. Um, so two of the top scientific goals of Parker Solar Probe are to understand the sources and the structure of the solar wind up close, right as it leaves the sun. Uh, and I think we've made pretty good progress here on the first few orbits. Pretty spectacular stuff. So out near Earth, the solar wind is a, is a highly evolved, turbulent, more or less steady stream blowing radially away from the sun past the planets and out to the edge of the heliosphere. Uh, but to get at this, I kind of like to use the analogy of a waterfall. Imagine that we live like halfway down a waterfall and the water is always flowing past us. It's very turbulent, chaotic, unstructured. And we want to know what's, uh, what is the source of the waterfall up at the top. You know, is there an iceberg melting up there? Is there a sprinkler system? Is there a lake, a hole in the ground? Um, and it's very hard to tell from halfway down. So what Parker has done is got us closer than ever to the sun. And so now we can really see a lot of the structure. And we can see, in this case, we can clearly see a source of the wind, too. And I should say here that, um, that we're at solar minimum. So this is the minimum of sunspots. Um, so things are, are as simple magnetically as they get on the sun. It's made it relatively easy for us to understand our data. So we're lucky, we're fortunate to, to launch when we did. So what do we see? We see some very exciting things. First, we see a source, a clear source of the, of the solar wind. At, at the perihelion of solar probe, at Parker Solar Probe, so this is the closest approach, we see very clearly that the solar wind is slow. It's relatively slow. It's highly magnetized, and it's emerging from a very small coronal hole near the equator. And it's at lower altitudes uh, than, we, than we'd expected originally. So coronal holes, you have some images that you can see. Uh, coronal holes are these regions of cooler, less dense gas with magnetic fields that thread out into space and interplanetary space. They're associated with sunspots. We've always known that coronal, or we've known for a while that coronal holes over the poles of the sun emit faster solar wind, but at the equator where you have all the streamer structure, we weren't sure. Uh, second, we see that the solar wind is very bursty. 
So yeah, there's a there's a quiet, steady radial flow outward, but on top of that are these huge magnetic structures and waves. Uh, the field, the magnetic field, flips around by 180 degrees. They carry jets of plasma. It's really spectacular stuff, and and I'm quite sure they're telling us something fundamental. You have some graphics and images that you can look look at uh, regarding these too. And third. Um, we see that the, the way that the electrons and ions are, are emerging out of the solar, uh, from the sun in the solar wind, propagating into the interplanetary magnetic field, well, they do it in a way that generates lots of small waves. So the solar wind plasma is essentially, it's bubbly, it's unstable. Uh, and this is not how it is uh, near Earth. So we think this is a way that energy can be transferred between the electromagnetic fields and the plasma particles. And we did have a surprise, too, and that is dust. So Parker is driving right through the dust cloud surrounding the sun. This is the source of the zodiacal light. So this is dust from comets and asteroids. Uh, as they enter the inner heliosphere, they ablate, and the dust and dirt gets released into orbit, and we're plowing right into it. And whenever a dust particle hits the spacecraft, the Parker Solar Probe spacecraft, it generates a little blip of electricity. And we measure that blip with the field's instrument. So we can count up the blips. We can say which direction they're coming from. And we're starting to uh, build up a picture of the, a better picture of the dust environment near the sun. So, so what's next? We're on the Venus at the end of the month, then back to the sun at a lower altitude and on to solar maximum. So it's exciting stuff. And, uh, and I'm going to hand off to my friend, Justin Casper. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, my name is Justin Casper, and I'm a professor of space science and engineering at the University of Michigan. I'm also the principal investigator of the SWEEP instrument suite. Uh, SWEEP stands for Solar Wind Electrons, Alphas, and Protons, and it's a set of four instruments that gather up all the electrons and ions near the spacecraft that represent the bulk of the particles in the solar corona and the solar atmosphere and tell us things like temperature and pressure and the speed of the wind. Um, now, two of our discoveries uh, that we're reporting relate to those high-level original Parker Solar Probe science objectives that Stuart also mentioned. What's heating the solar corona up to such high temperatures, millions of degrees, thousand times hotter than the surface of the sun, and what accelerates the solar wind to its really high speeds? Now, in terms of the heating, um, we had a hunch uh, kind of what we were looking for when we got closer to the sun. Uh, in the solar wind, we always see these things called alphane waves. Alphane waves are a special wave you get in a magnetized plasma. Uh, they're waves where the particles in the magnetic field wiggle in unison. I like to think of it as plucking a guitar string with the magnetic field playing the role of the string. So we very often see alphane waves in the solar wind. And so one question we had is, well, maybe when we get closer to the sun, we'll see these magnetic uh, speed waves, um, and that's going to maybe get stronger or they'll change somehow, and we'll see that they're actually responsible for the heating of the corona. So we're wondering if the waves would change. Um, and this was one of our really big surprises. Yes, uh, overall the waves were stronger, um, but we're also finding these discrete powerful waves that wash over the spacecraft, kind of like rogue waves in an ocean. Uh, they carry a tremendous amount of energy. Uh, when one of these rogue waves pass by the spacecraft, the speed of the wind can spike by more than 300,000 miles an hour uh, just in seconds. And then for seconds or minutes, we're in this high-speed um, rogue wave, and then just as quickly in seconds, it, it goes past us and we're back in the normal solar wind. These rogue waves are so strong, they actually flip the direction of the magnetic field. So, you know, imagine plucking that guitar string, but you've somehow managed to twist the string all the way around on itself. These are very large and energetic events. Um, and we're really excited about this. 
um, because we think it tells us uh, possibly a path towards understanding how energy is getting from the sun into the atmosphere uh, and heating it. Um, as Stuart said, uh, these were seen with fields also, so uh, both the rotation of the magnetic field and this uh, velocity spike each time one of them passed by us. Uh, the really large ones, we saw maybe a thousand of them over the course of an encounter with the sun. Um, so these are great clues that now we can go look at the surface of the sun and try to figure out what's causing these and launching them uh, up into space. With respect to how the solar wind is accelerated and gets up to high speeds and how it flows, uh, we had another really big surprise. Now, <clears throat> we all know that the surface of the sun rotates, but how far into its atmosphere does that rotation stay in sync with the sun? Uh, if you think about it, you're sitting in a room on Earth right now. Earth is going around at about 1,000 meters per second, but you're not getting blasted by a 1,000 meter per second wind because the atmosphere gets dragged along. The same thing happens uh, as the sun spins, but it extends a lot further out uh, away from the sun than it does in Earth's case. And that's because we think the sun's magnetic field is gripping the corona and the wind and forcing it to rotate. I like to think about it like a merry-go-round at a park with kids on it. Uh, you know, they're holding on to the bars or the magnetic field further and further out from the center. They're forced to spin faster and faster and faster. And we've always expected at some distance the solar wind can't hold on anymore, like kids that can't hold on to that merry-go-round. Uh, our standard models of the sun predicted that when we got really close to the sun a few years from now, we might even see a, a small uh, rotation left over from this rigid motion. Uh, but to our surprise, as we got close to the sun, we found a large and growing rotation of the wind around the sun. We've already detected a rotational flow around the sun of the wind 15 to 25 times larger than was uh, predicted uh, to be seen. That tells us we're clearly missing something really fundamental in our models of the sun and how the wind rotates as the sun spins. And this is going to have a lot of impacts. Uh, for example, the rotation of that wind is the dominant way that our sun and other stars lose angular momentum and spin down as they age. So is the sun actually going to be spinning down faster than expected? Um, or when we continue our exploration and we dive over other places on the sun, will we discover equally large flows but in other directions that cancel out? Either way, these findings are really important uh, for understanding any kind of rotating plasma in the universe from young stars and their planets to black holes and accretion. Now, a major objective in our field uh, beyond uh, just understanding the underlying physics is pretty practically trying to predict space weather. Uh, we want to know whether coronal mass ejections, sort of massive eruptions of parts of the solar corona, uh, imagine uh, a blob of plasma with the mass of Lake Michigan getting accelerated up to a few million miles an hour in minutes and thrown out into space. Um, we see these fly away from the sun, and then we have a several-day gap before we see them in interplanetary space. And we'd love to be able to predict whether or not they might strike Earth or pose a threat to astronauts on their way to the moon or to Mars. Uh, well, seeing that there are these large flows gives us a big hint of a way to improve those prediction models. Uh, not accounting for these large flows is like ignoring crosswinds when trying to predict where a hurricane is going to make landfall. Uh, these findings are already pointing us in a way to improve uh, our space weather forecasts. Uh, and with that, I'm going to toss it to uh, Russ Howard. Thanks, Justin. Uh, my name is Russell Howard. I'm an astrophysicist at the Naval Research Lab in the Space Science Division, and I'm the principal investigator for the WHISPER instrument. 
Whisper measures, uh, takes images of the solar atmosphere uh, from scattered light from electrons and, and dust that are in the, in the, uh, orbiting the sun. The idea is to, is to then reveal the, the coronal structures and plasma flowing out from the sun. We've been observing this solar corona from the orbit of Earth for many, many years. And in fact, observations of large eruptions from the sun, as Justin said, the coronal mass ejection, are part of a national effort, and in fact an international effort, to warn of potential impact on Earth. Aside from these events, though, the coronal observations tend to show uh, very complex patterns close to the sun that uh, be then become uh, simple radial structures as they uh, further out from, from the sun, and which are smooth but show occasional intensity variations as the plasma is moving outward. But from Parker Solar Probe, we have a very different view. We see continuous fluctuations of small structures, both steady and gusty outflows, and thin rays permeating the corona. Small blobs that were unresolved from the Earth orbit are actually small magnetic flux ropes. These are helical, uh, showing the helical field lines going around a current, just like a wire uh, carrying a current uh, generates a magnetic field around it. Small, faint coronal mass ejections are also seen. Some of them we saw from Earth orbit, but uh, some were, were not. These are nothing particularly unique about them, they were, but they were very, very small. This is the same dynamic behavior that we've seen in, in situ at, at Earth uh, as the fluctuating input to our magnetosphere. And so this is telling us that much of the dynamics seen at Earth is simply mimicking the dynamical nature of the sun itself. This is different than what we had been seeing before. And so it's been really been good to see uh, the, the, the solar wind at this, at this time of the solar cycle, as, as, just, as um, Stuart was saying particularly, that we are at the minimum of the solar activity cycle. And so this is kind of the quiet state of the sun. In a few years, we're going to be going approaching the solar maximum phase of the cycle, and we'll be seeing large coronal mass ejections making really dramatic impact on what we're seeing. But not all of the dy this dynamic behavior starts at the sun. We may have seen, the, in fact, the birth of one of these flux ropes in the solar wind. It began as magnetic reconnections at two places along the heliospheric current sheet, becoming an elliptical shape and then um, evolving into a circular shape as the magnetic structure relaxes. We were able to follow the sequence for six hours because the magnetic island, this, 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 um, this instability that, that we were just observing, stayed at about the same distance ahead of Parker. And that means that we're, Parker is going at about the same speed as the, as the coronal rotation, which in fact, as, as Justin just said, is the speed at the solar surface. And so this is really close, very similar to what, what uh, Sweep saw. We also found a very unusual decrease in the interplanetary dust scattering. 
as the Parker Solar Probe approaches the sun. The dust is in this circular orbit about the sun, and the decrease is from what we had been seeing previously and is what must happen if there is a dust-free region. The idea that dust particles close to the sun could not survive and would disappear by sublimation due to the very intense heat was predicted nearly 100 years ago, but never seen. Whisper sees this decrease starting at about 20 solar radii and keeps getting stronger down to the limit of the field of view at about 10 solar radii. As Parker's perihelion distance gets closer to the sun from its current position of 36 radii, we expect to see the actual dust-free zone. It may even be at the next perihelion in January. What was a bit of a surprise is that the dust decrease is very smooth. We don't see any sudden decreases indicating that some material has evaporated. Ultimately, these observations are going to tell us more about the physics of the sublimation process and the kind of material that makes up the dust in this region. Echoing uh, what Stuart said earlier, the Parker probe is, is being bathed in the interplanetary dust, and occasionally he sees these, these um, electric uh, impacts. And what Whisper sees is actually the particles coming off um, in, in kind of a dust storm. So with that, I'll turn it over to Dave McComas. Thanks, Russ. Hi, I'm Dave McComas. I'm a professor of astrophysical sciences at Princeton University, and I'm also the principal investigator for the Integrated Science Investigation of the Sun, or ESIS instrument. So ESIS measures energetic particles that are coming out from the sun. These are very high energy, very fast moving particles that are really important for space exploration. Before I get into that, let me just mention that the last six images on the web page are all related to the stuff I'll be describing, so you can see some more information there. So these energetic particles are almost unimaginably tiny, individual electrons or protons, a few other ions, but because they have such high energies, they, can, they pose a major hazard to satellites like GPS, communications, uh, military satellites, and others. And they also can have a major effect on astronauts traveling outside of the protection of the Earth's magnetic field when you get out of low Earth orbit on your way to the moon or Mars or that sort of thing. So understanding the solar radiation in the form of these highly energetic particles is absolutely critical to understanding space weather and astronaut safety. So we sent Parker uh, Solar Probe in close to the sun to unravel the mysteries of how particles can get to such high energies. And I'm talking about particles that are typically tens of thousands of electron volts up to hundreds of millions of electron volts. And an electron volt is nothing more than the energy that a particle receives when it's accelerated through that voltage. So, you know, if you have something that's several hundred million electron volts, that's an individual particle that's been accelerated through millions of volts. And you can think about those volts in the same volts that you have in your house. You have 120 volt uh, circuits in your house that power all the things that you have in your home. So these are really, really high energies. So by going in close to the sun, we're able to start to untangle how they get energized to these high levels. And we're also starting to understand how they get transported from the place where they're energized out into, uh, out into the solar wind. Um, these two things, are, these are two things we've been trying to untangle for a long time, uh, out from Earth orbit and from other satellites. But the problem is that all of this, all these energetic particles get jumbled together as they transit out from the sun. Um, they come out from multiple different sources, and it's very hard to track 
connect them back and understand uh, what processes actually did those energizations. So in just the first two orbits, Parker has already traveled nearly twice as close to the sun as any prior spacecraft. We've seen a variety of different energetic particle events. Um, one of the things that's really interesting that we've discovered is that many of these events can be much smaller than we were able to see from Earth orbit. And so there seems to be a, a spectrum or a continuum of, of particle events that get smaller and smaller and smaller, and we're only able to see because we're in so very close to the sun. They get completely washed out by the time you get out to Earth's orbit. This is interesting because one of the mysteries that we've been trying to untangle is how you get particles to very high energy. It's a lot easier to get them there if you start with some middle energy, tens of kilo electron volts to hundreds of kilo electron volts. Um, and so these are source particles that may be constantly feeding material into the solar system that can be used as seed particles for the much higher energy events. So the spectrum of smaller events is one of the really important new results that we're already seeing from Parker Solar Probe. Another interesting thing uh, that we've observed is particle events associated with different kinds of drivers. Um, Justin uh, and has already talked about this coronal mass ejection, uh, coronal mass ejections that come out. One of the coronal mass ejections actually passed over Parker Solar Probe in while we were pretty close to the sun. Um, these CMEs are large amounts of material that get episodically blown off by the sun out through the corona and into interplanetary space. Um, and they have a very important effect of also accelerating energetic particles. And so there was a small coronal mass ejection observed by Parker Solar Probe. Um, it had a, a very small and low energy event, energetic particle event associated with it. Um, and we saw that nearly uh, a full day ahead of the coronal mass ejection. And so this is actually sort of a precursor that you can see um, in advance of the coronal mass ejection uh, arriving. So that's interesting too. Um, and uh, I think I'll close the loop by coming back to the dust that's been discussed um, by Stuart and Russ. Um, you know, we've been talking about the dust environment and seeing them in a number of images and, and uh, hitting the radio antennas and that sort of thing, but East has also observed a, a particular grain of dust, and that dust grain came in and actually pierced one of our 80 little telescope apertures. We have 80 apertures looking in different directions in our low-energy instrument. And one of those was pierced very close to perihelium 2 uh, by a tiny dust grain. And we could tell because the background went up when, when, when that happened. Um, it turns out that that was the aperture that was looking most in the direction of the of the dust inflow and relative motion of the spacecraft. Um, we're able to adjust how we use the instrument, so it's not a problem for us to do that, but it's a very, you know, it's a very real effect and, and a direct measure of this dust environment. So the first two orbits of Parker Solar Probe have been really fantastic, and we're just starting to scratch the surface uh, of this fascinating physics. Um, we're continuing to put, a, put together the data from the various instruments and learn how they all contribute together to our deeper understanding. And so Parker is surely much more than just the sum of the parts of these different measurements. Going forward, as Parker gets closer to the sun, um, we'll uncover even more answers to these mysteries and learn even more fantastic things. And with that, I'll toss it back to Nikki Fox. Nikki? Okay. So uh, obviously, we've, we have not uh, got all the answers to all of our high-level science objectives just yet. But over the next six years, we're certainly looking forward to getting closer and closer to the sun each time we fly past the planet Venus. We have another six of those flybys, and it will take our orbit closer and closer. And so as we get closer, we'll be right in the sources of the heat, the sources of the accelerating particles, and of course, those amazing eruptions that, that you've heard all of the presenters talk about. 
even with what we have now, we already know that we, we will need to adjust the models we use to understand the sun. And I'll just close with the, the thought that, you know, Dave so nicely said that Parker is really more, more than the sum of its parts. And, and really for the heliophysics division, um, we are more than, than the, the sum of, you know, we put together all of these, these missions to, to really further our understanding of the sun. And clearly Parker is playing such a pivotal role by finally providing us those measurements so close to our star and allowing us to put them into the whole heliophysics um, spectrum of measurements to, to really illuminate the sun and its effect on our planet. So with that, I'll pass it back to uh, Greg. Thanks, everybody. I just want to remind everybody to use star one if you have a question. We've got a lot of people online, so if you do have a question, we have five experts here to uh, to answer them. Just to kick things off, I guess I'll just throw it to Nikki. Why, why is all this important? Why, why do we study the sun like this? Oh, so it's, it's important for many reasons. Um, one, of course, is it, it's a star. Um, this is the first time we've ever been able to fly a spacecraft into the atmosphere of a star. And that alone, to me, is, is just so exciting. Um, the fact that it's our nearest star, and it has a profound effect on us here on Earth, is, is even, even better. But we've waited for decades and decades to understand uh, these, these mysteries. Um, they've been around for hundreds, some of them for hundreds of years, understanding how our star works. And uh, you know, 1958, Gene Parker published his seminal paper that predicted that the atmosphere of the sun would be continually accelerated away. Um, four years later, Martian Neugebauer proved it with the observations from the Mariner spacecraft. And since then, we've really waited for technology to uh, mature so that we could actually fly this daring mission and finally get all these observations. The important thing is getting to the source. Stuart gave a beautiful analogy of trying to figure out what's happening in a waterfall if you can't see the, the, the source of it. And so, you know, we're going up that waterfall right down the river, right to the very uh, tiny stream that, that's starting everything off. So it's just an exciting time to be a heliophysicist. Thanks, Nikki. We do have a question on the phone line from Marcia Dunn with Associated Press. You may ask your question. Yes, hello. Um, I'm wondering, this dust environment that you've been um, battling around the sun, um, is it, is, are there as many uh, potentially dangerous particles as, as you anticipated? Um, did you think that the spacecraft might be wounded, so to speak? And um, are you concerned about its um, safety moving forward? Uh, hi, Monica. This is Nikki. Um, so we obviously did a, a lot of work of modeling the dust environment and protecting the spacecraft. Um, we, asked, we did see more dust. Um, on the first couple of orbits than we had expected, and so uh, we're, you know, we're very, very grateful to the data that we have, particularly from Fields and Whisper, uh, that are enabling us to study that dust environment and put it into our models. Um, I can't say that we don't worry about the spacecraft. Uh, I mean, it's a spacecraft going into an environment that we've never been before, and I, I think all five of us would agree that um, you know, any time you send something into space, you, uh, you, you worry about its safety. Um, Dave did note uh, the loss of one of the apertures on, on the, uh, the ESIS um, detector. But, um, you know, and he also noted we have 79 more. And uh, we, we, you know, we're, we're very um, optimistic that uh, we're going to continue to do great science as we continue to get closer and closer. Uh, thank you, and I, I know this is uh, this might be a hard answer for you, but what would you uh, say would be the most 
surprising, significant finding um, from the papers being published today? I can say something if you'd like. This is Stuart. Um, I think I think the preponderance and ubiquity of these large alphanic structures that uh, that Justin and I talk about. They've been seen occasionally near Earth. They've been seen occasionally at other places. Um, but by the time you get far from the sun, it's all mixed up and washed out, and it's hard to see what's going on. But but these things that we're calling jets or switchbacks, they're they're striking, and it's hard to not think that they're somehow important in the whole problem. And this is Dave, I would say from an energetic particle perspective, the fact that we're seeing this spectrum to much smaller sizes and lower energies than we were able to see before is also a really striking result. Thank you. Thank you again. If you'd like to ask a question, just press star one. Next question comes from Jennifer Lehman with Popular Mechanics. You may ask your question. Hi, um, thank you so much for uh, this opportunity. Um, so I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it feels like to, you know, find evidence of this dust-free zone. It's been proposed for so long. Um, was there a moment where you realized that, um, you know, your data really, you know, showed that this might be true? Yeah, it really is exciting. Uh, we had been, as as the spacecraft was moving closer to the sun, uh, it was we were seeing exactly the same profile that we see from from 1AU, and in fact, uh, that the Helios mission from 73 to 74, rather, to about 81 or 82, uh, that that they saw. But uh, the, the Helios mission, in fact, went to 0.3AU, which is twice as as far as as whispers as as probes um, uh, perihelion distance, but uh, they did not see any evidence for the decrease. And so, there, the question of whether or not a dust-free zone existed is was still was still being um, debated quite quite a bit in the community. And then when we saw that first first decrease, it was just, uh, and then the second one, and they all tended to line up. We knew that we had something, and it was really quite quite a good feeling. Great. Thank you. Thank you. And this question comes from Mike Wall with Space.com. Let me ask your question. Thank you all for doing this. Um, just had a quick question about the coronal heating mystery. I just wonder what's what's the latest thinking on that, and when might you start sort of getting a better handle on it? And I mean, how sort of close do you need to, to be getting to the solar surface, or, or or how deep into the corona do you do you think you really need to get? Just I could say a word about that, and then Stuart, maybe you want to chime in. Um, so you know, what's really exciting about these big uh, rogue waves going by the velocity spikes, like Stuart said, they're so distinct. Uh, and coherent, and we can count them. You know, there are like a thousand of them that last more than a few seconds in the 11 days we plunge by the sun. So now we're getting like really concrete hints for uh, what to look for uh, on the solar surface. So one of the things we're going to reach out to the whole community to do now is try to ask, you know, what 
does the sun emit at that cadence, you know, of that duration with these possible properties that could fly up uh, and, and be seen by the spacecraft. And I think we're really about to make contact with all those remote sensing uh, images we've made of the sun over the years. So it's, it's very exciting. It's incredible to think we're going to get three times closer over the next five years. Um, so, you know, are these spikes just going to get, you know, larger or are they going to morph into something, you know, even more complex? It, it's clearly something we're going to be following the entire mission. Okay, thanks. We'll take our next question, operator. Thank you. It'd be one moment, please. We do have a question from Paul. Deepajaris with CBS Interactive. You may ask your question. Hi, this is Tanya Hall with CBS News Interactive. And my question would be, uh, what are Dr. Eugene Parker's reactions about the mission's progress so far? Hi, Tanya. Um, so uh, as, as I, I actually had the pleasure of going to visit with, uh, with Gene to celebrate Parker's first birthday on orbit with him, and I got to show him some of the sneak peek um, data, and, and uh, I think you'll see we'll put a, a video out. We have a NASA live show coming up at 3, and you'll see um, on the video there how emotional he gets. Um, just about uh, about the data, about the fact that you know he feels that this spacecraft is is really part of the team. He actually got a little teary when he said, you know, uh, we sent her off and she's not coming back. Um, but he's extremely excited. I know he's been corresponding with many of the PIs about their um, their results. Um, he's even written a, a couple of articles. Uh, one is the foreword for an upcoming Nature Astronomy um, edition, and of course he wrote that very moving uh, letter to the spacecraft that was in National Geographic. So uh, he's very, very plugged in um, as much as, as he can be and uh, very much enjoying seeing the, the great things to come. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as always, these are the first results. Um, we have a lot more to come as, uh, as Parker continues on her journey through the heliosphere. Thanks, Nikki. Thank you again. If you have a question, press star one. Our next question comes from John Prezzo with Fun with Urban Astronomy. You may ask your question. Yes, I wondered if uh, David and Stuart could speak to the integration in image number 13 of the energetic particles preceding the coronal mass ejection and the rise in the uh, electromagnetic uh, uh, activity that the, the, the plasma does not carry the, the, the particles. Is that true? Yes, so what you're seeing in image 13 is a combination of the low-energy energetic particles in the top panel and the magnetic field in the bottom panel. And the actual arrival of the CME is between the dotted vertical lines where you can see sort of a large, smooth rotation of the field. The interesting thing about it is these particles start arriving uh, almost a, a, a day ahead of time. That's because they don't co-travel with the slow-moving solar wind, relatively slow-moving solar wind. It's still very fast. Um, but they don't co-move with that, but instead they rush out ahead along the magnetic field line, sort of like fish jumping upstream, moving faster than the water. And so they arrive significantly before the actual structure of the CME gets to the spacecraft. Well, that's a wrap on this podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca. I read and answer all your comments in a timely fashion. 
You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space, and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook. Regardless of which app you use to listen to us, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate our podcast and write a review. Of course, that's only if you like us. Your rating and review will help us in getting the podcast widely listened to. And hey, if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash spaceq. Lastly, if you haven't listened to the latest episode of our new podcast, Terranauts, what are you waiting for? Host Ian Christie is a natural interviewer who knows how to tease good stories from those who work every day in space, but don't go to space. Terranauts is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite app. Listen to it now. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.